you have the keep going and find the help you need because we're all worth the things we need to live our best life. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Dr. George Thomas and welcome to Reasonable Necessary, a Australia's period podcast series on the National Disability Insurance Code. Brought to you by the Summer Foundation. But before we go any further, please do me a favor and hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and select the notification bell so you can be notified of future episodes. On today's episode, we're talking about NDIS appeals and what to do when they're not happy with your NDIS plan. Check it out. Hi, Rich. Welcome to the show. Good to be here, George. So tell us a bit about you, Mitch. <laughs> so um, my full name is Mitchell Skipsey, and I'm a senior solicitor, uh, a lawyer working at uh, PIAC, the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. So uh, the work I do there, a lot of it revolves around the NDIS and particularly uh, helping people with appeals uh, around uh, questions around their funding for strategic litigation and other, other matters that we think are worth uh, addressing through uh, appeals and also to try and shape the law uh, around the NDIS to make sure that it's, it's getting fair outcomes for people and doing what the scheme is set out to do from the outset. It's what we all want to do. There's a, a word there that I quite like. You said strategic litigation. That sounds like fun. <laughs> Can you tell us what that means? Yeah, uh, this is one I, uh, I do a bit of explaining at uh, sort of dinner party t- uh, contexts um, because it's not a term a lot of people come across, but strategic litigation, um, it means that when you are, uh, so litigation means running a court case, um, but strategic litigation means running a court case where you want to get an outcome for the, the individual client that you're representing. You do want to want to get a good outcome for them, but you're also looking to see what are the bigger impacts. So law uh, through court cases can set precedents. Uh, it can uh, help to bring issues to light and change government practices or uh, practices of sort of companies and other other parties. And sometimes the the law and litigation can be a good opportunity for storytelling, for helping uh, people express themselves and, and bring forward voices that are not always heard. So strategic litigation means uh, you're running your case not just to win that one case, but with an eye on that bigger picture of the, the policy and the legal landscape. And this is really important in the NDIS, isn't it? Because... The NDIS is quite new in the scheme of things, and I know that over the years that there have been all sorts of issues that have been uh, in dispute. So, you know, will the NDIS pay for transport, and, you know, we had the, the, the McGarrigal case around um, that, and we uh, had this opportunity to test out what the courts had to say around what is reasonable and necessary. It's, mm. it's a great name for a podcast, don't you think? <laughs> oh, wonderful. I hope it's not taken. <laughs> um, so that, that's essentially what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the NDIS is quite new, and that means that there is a reason for uh, courts and tribunals to be filling in some of those gaps. Um, but also to make sure that there's this um, this conversation between sort of civil society and and people with disability um, and the NDIA and the government through that litigated forum. And and it's worth saying. I mean, the NDIS, uh, as a lawyer, when you read it, you you see quite quickly it's quite a complicated piece of uh, legal machinery uh, from that perspective. And so there are questions that need to get worked out through um, through these sorts of cases. Uh, and, and I guess what we aim to do is make sure that they get worked out uh, efficiently and well, and in a way that gives gives good outcomes to the people that the scheme should serve. Excellent. I'd love that you do that. I think that it's very important that we have um, people who are uh, trained in the law that can help participants to assert their rights. Very important. Okay, so let's now turn to the participant who is unhappy or doesn't understand uh, this is an NDIS has made. What should it do in that case? Sure. So we're probably then when we're talking about the NDIA making a decision, uh, we're probably talking about either an access decision about whether you become a participant in the NDIS 
or about a planning decision about whether or not you get supports funded in your plan. Um, there are other types of decisions that can get made, but most things that people um, get most affected by are those access and planning decisions. Um, and so if the NDIA has made a decision that you, um, that you don't like, I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the things I think that people should, should do first up is make sure that they understand uh, why that decision's been made. And if they haven't been given enough information, if they haven't been given good reasons, um, I really think that it's worth asking, um, asking the question. Reaching out to the agency either, you know, through an email address that they might have communicated with you through, um, through various sorts of um, other kind of inboxes that they have. Um, depending on the decision, you might be able to talk to the planner or whoever's met with you and try and say, look, can you explain a bit more about why this decision's been made? I I'd like to know what, what, what's happened to you so I can think about what my options are next. And then I said, it wasn't good value for money. Sorry, you'll be fine. Talk to them 12 months. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I mean, the, the NDIS is an area where it's, it's quite disappointing as a lawyer sometimes to see those sorts of reasons that are, don't really have a lot of content to them that, that aren't really properly fleshed out. And I guess one thing you can try in those sort of settings is to ask a few more questions and say, well, you've said not good value for money, but here are some here are some points that I've said I think are good value, or I, I'm not sure how you've, how you've made that decision, can you talk me through it? And I, I do want to say, while, while I'm aware often people don't get, don't get a good response to that, or maybe they don't get a response at all, it's worth asking the question because participants do, do have a right to know these sorts of things. It's a principle of administrative law that if government makes a decision about you, you have a right to know why and to understand it. And so I think it's worth asking those questions just to sort of... Um, Sometimes you get a helpful answer, and even if you don't, I think it might be handy um, later on if you wind up in an, a more appealing kind of uh, contested space to say, well, look, I've been asking you this for a while. I've got the paper trail. I've got these emails I've sent you. I really just want to understand a bit more uh, and to be able to show you've been engaging from the outset and been, been really looking to just be constructive and to, to understand why they've, they've done what they've done. And what if you're not happy with that explanation? Yeah, well, I mean, so if we're talking about an initial decision, if it's a plan that you've been given that you're not happy about, or if it's a, an access uh, decision that the agency said, well, we're not going to, to give you access to the scheme, the first thing that people can do and that they have to do as, as a process question if they want to challenge that is to uh, request an internal review. So to do that, you have to contact the agency and say, I'd like you to take another look at your decision. And that means that the agency, a different staff member at the agency, has a look at all of the information that they've got. Um, they have to look at, as well, at any new information you wanna give them. So if you wanna send them additional reports or statements, um, that, that new staff member that is doing that internal review will look at all of that and they'll make up their mind about whether or not they think uh, the, the first decision, the first person who looked at your case at the agency got it right or if they got it wrong. And so that's always going to be the first step in challenging an agency's decision that you don't agree with. And if that's a, that, that, that can be a pathway that people feel quite frustrated to have to go down. But I do want to stress, it's, it doesn't cost anything. Uh, it's free. You, you can put in as much uh, time and effort into pursuing that as you choose. Uh, you can send them additional evidence and information, but you don't have to. Um, and it's often worth just asking the question to see, well, if someone reviews this, if another person takes a look, do they see something different? Um, will, will they actually be able to see my side of the picture a bit more clearly than the first person that's made this call that I'm not happy about? And you have to do that within a certain time, don't you? Yeah, there's a three-month time frame to make that request. And it's quite flexible how you can do it as well. You can do it over the phone if you need to, if you can do it you know, by sending a letter or by an email. I normally recommend email is best writing an email just saying, I'd like to request an internal review of this decision. Um, and you can just reply to an email that you've got or send one off um, just so that you've got the record. But yeah. if you need uh, other forms, you, it's quite flexible how you, how you express it. Yeah, and that's important because um, you don't want to be in a situation that said, you said on the phone that, like, if you just like, go to this email where you said this, so what is that? I'm all for... I'm also paper trails. <laughs> yeah, I don't like paper trails. I hate hard copies of paper trails. They're not good. Yeah, but the number one thing a lawyer will always tell you is uh, get it in writing, put it in exactly. an email. <laughs> exactly. And so you can go to the review and then the review comes back and they're like, yeah, nah, not value for money. <laughs> then what? 
So the next step, if you get an internal review that you're not happy with, um, sometimes sometimes what the agency might say to you is, well, if you want, you can ask for another review or uh, you know put in a request for a new plan or something. And that basically sends you right back to the start of the, the process. Um, now, there are times where people might say, you know what, I'd rather keep dealing with the agency and I don't want don't to escalate things, so I'm going to keep doing that. But I do want to stress that if, the, if ultimately the issue is that you and the agency don't agree, if they just have a, a different view in principle about what you should get, um, then asking the agency to keep thinking about it might not be helpful. And instead, what you might need to do at that point is uh, go to the AAT for an external review. And so the AAT, that stands for the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Um, and that's an external, it's an independent body. Um, it's a little bit, it functions a little bit like a court, although it's not a court. Um, and it's quite a bit more informal than a court is probably the most important distinction. It's, it's mm. quite a bit more relaxed. Um, and so did our, um, our podcast, Dave, timely. We're, we're, <laughs> we're recording this at the end of July uh, 2020. So I understand that the, the AAT is going to turn into something else down the track, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So um, to, uh, several months ago, uh, the government announced that they're going to replace it with something new, a new body that will do external reviews of, of all different kinds of government decisions, including right. NDIS ones. So that, that might look different or it might look quite similar to the AAT. We just don't really know. Yeah, so the people listen to at home, like, when we say AAT, we're referring to whatever external review body ends up being. Um, it ends up um, doing that instead of the AOT, so, mm. that, that's so you get a fresh um, look at it, don't you, when you go to the AOT. It's no longer the agency looking at their own mm. decisions. You get this uh, set of uh, people who, that, that's their job, isn't it, to review mm. government decisions. Yeah, so the um, the AAT does, um, and I, 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 I promised you earlier, George, I'd go easy on the Latin today, um, but uh, yeah, what they, they sometimes call this a de novo review, and what that means is... De novo. So as That's new, cool. from yeah. new, from new. So it means the AAT is, is looking at the decision almost from scratch. They, they look at all the same materials, but they're not trying to look at, oh, well, what's the specific um, error? They don't need to find a, a specific mistake in what the agency did. Instead, it's about a fresh person coming in with a fresh pair of eyes to really make up their own mind from a, a neutral, external, from scratch, as new position. Um, and so that, that does mean that you're, it's meant to sort of um, be a bit of a circuit breaker to these cases where you and the agency might not agree. You can say, well, let's have someone else take a look at it who's, who's not involved and not invested in that, that uh, relationship dynamic. Excellent. Now, earlier in the I... I uh, had the pleasure of speaking with someone who's been through this de novo review, this new AOT um, first look um, review. She wasn't happy with her NDA decision. Let's take a look at what she had to say. Hi, Felice. Welcome to the show. Hi, George. Thank you for asking me on. It's great to have you on. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about you. My name is Felice. I'm 45 years old. I have cerebral palsy and I use a power chair. I like to call myself an activist and I do a bit of acting every now and then. Now, tell us a bit about where you used to live and where you're living now. I used to live in the um, Department of Housing High-Rise in a converted accessible flat, but it wasn't 100% suitable to my needs, so... One day I saw some housing at a exhibition. I think it was a midsummer carnival. 
So I applied for a apartment, and that's where I am now. So it's much, much more comfortable. Now, I understand for this, it wasn't an easy or straightforward journey for the required for SDA, and what happened? Well, I got my plan back. It was approved, but it wasn't the housing type I needed. They approved me for a three-resident house, and I explicitly asked them for a single-tenant apartment. So I had to appeal the decision. Yeah, you wanted to live alone and uh, you had an NDS decision that said that you had to share with yes. people. There were many reasons why I couldn't accept that decision. Okay, and I'd like to understand what it was like for you when you got that decision. How did you decide that you wanted to appeal it? I just knew I wasn't able to literally, physically, or mentally survive in the share house condition due to my dietary restrictions, the fact that I have cats and a partner with autism who visits every weekend, so the share house wouldn't work. So I looked around online for some help. What was the experience like when you uh, had to appeal that decision? What was that like for you? What was it like to go through that? They kept on asking for more and more evidence as to why I couldn't comply with the decision and it was mentally and physically taxing. I'm sorry to hear that. They wanted me to give up. I felt like I wasn't being respected as a full human being. Oh, that's really not what we should be experiencing. Sorry you went through that for us. Thank you. Now, you got some help from some lawyers, is that right? Firstly, I went to a minor. I'm not sure what the acronym stands for, but I know that they help people get dignity and choice in their housing. I got an advocate and the process got to a point where she didn't have the legal knowledge required. So together we applied to legal aid and I got a barrister that way. Fantastic that you got that support. I was very lucky. I think they saw that I had enough evidence. That's the thing I found. Even though it's really hard, you have to keep looking and get your file really thick of things in your favour. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that it has to be that complicated. 
Um, what, what was the hardest thing for you? Keeping um, physically and mentally focused, lots of sleep, eating properly, just trying to keep a positive mindset because I think it took almost 18 months from the day I put the application in to the day they agreed to allow me to move into the home of my choice. 18 months is a very long time. Yes. The housing and uh, and then how did you end up when you obviously got the the decision in your favour? How did that come about? There were I think five or six like pre hearing conferences with the NEIA representative lawyers, my advocate and my lawyer and myself and then a mediator from the AAT. I forgot to mention that there weren't actual hearings, they were like pre-hearing. Yeah, and so that means that you try and resolve the matter before going to the hearing. So you had five of those. Five a lot of hearings. Five or six, yeah. <laughs> and then at the last one, what happened at the last one? The week after the last one, the day before the hearing was scheduled, the NDIA agreed to give me the one-bedroom apartment. So I took a breath for like three days and then I prepared my mind to move. <laughs> what did you learn from the experience? I learned that if you don't feel strong enough, you have to reach out for help because there are organizations that will guide you through. The most challenging thing I found was all the legal and policy terms that were thrown around. They were referring to sections of the NDIS Act. And a regular person doesn't understand those things. So yeah, and that's why you need uh, legal uh, help and advice from people who understand the law in the detail. Yeah, and um, when you apply for a hearing, they just casually mention that there are advocates and resources out there. They don't give you much direction as to where to go for that help. I did a lot of personal research myself. Well done for this. Um, uh, you obviously did a great job to uh, get your independence and choice over your living arrangements. Any words of advice for people in a similar situation who received an NDIS decision that they're, that they're not ha- happy with? What, what would you say to them? You will get a lot of 
challenges when you many, many forms, many, many requests for further evidence, but you have to keep going and find the help you need because we're all worth the things we need to live our best life and not in a positivity kind of sense but in a human rights kind of sense where everyone with a disability can contribute their talents and skills we just need the correct environment and support to do it and that's what this game is supposed to help with absolutely fellas perfectly said thank you so much for coming on to the show and for sharing your story we really appreciate it you're welcome i enjoy my time when if I can help people, they're welcome to contact me. Well, it's, that was a pretty impressive experience, Anton Thomas. What are your reflections listening to that? Yeah, it was, it's interesting hearing that. And a lot of what Felice had to say echoed things I've heard from my clients that I've worked with um, and, and other people I know that have gone through the process in the past. The, the point she made about it being quite, feeling quite technical um, and quite hard to understand, um, but it can be very intimidating. And I, I really do understand that, um, particularly when lawyers get talking to each other. Um, it can feel very sort of um, exclusive in a way that's not, not helpful. Um, for, for people who are trying to sort of understand what's going on. Um, and I also feel like the, um, the stress that Felice talked about is something I've heard a lot, the, the idea of it hanging over your head a little bit or dragging on and this idea that it's your, your life being dragged out into the open um, to, be, to be considered and evaluated in a way that's so personal to you. I, I, that came through really loud and clear to me and I, I feel that's a, that is one of those things that can be really tough. Yeah, I, I think Felice talked about that impact on her uh, mentally and, and physically. And uh, there are risks, aren't there, in going to the IT on, on in that aspect. Like, are there any other risks that people should consider? Like, can, I just some people might think, well, if I appeal my SBA decision, I might then lose something else. But do they review the whole, the whole thing and, and other risks in, in going to the IOT? Yeah, so I mean, a couple of things I want to say are not risks that I sometimes hear people being concerned about. Um, I'll start with those and then I want to talk about some of the, yeah, the things that you might need to be a bit more worried about. Um, for starters, you don't have to pay anything to go to the AAT. It's free um, and so there's not a cost involved in making that application. Um, it's also not... Uh, a situation where if you lose, you have to pay uh, the other side's legal fees or anything like that. There's no penalty for that sort of uh, an outcome, um, whereas there can be in other sorts of legal proceedings, and sometimes that makes people feel a bit uncertain. Um, but as you say, there are things that you might need to consider. Um, one one possibility is that the tribunal could take a fresh look at things, and they, they it, it's possible that they could decide um, that... They, they think you've been funded for something that you probably shouldn't be. But I guess I would also say that's, that's not something I've seen in practice and it would be very rare um, because for that to happen, it would probably need the AAT to, um, the, the agency, the NDIA would, would generally need to be making that argument that they had funded you for something that they shouldn't have funded you for. Um, and that would be unusual. So it's, it's quite rare that people go to the AAT and wind up with uh, uh, an outcome that is less than what they had going in. Um, I've never seen it happen. What about when you, at that first stage that we talked about, if you ask for a review of your decision by the NDA, can the second person looking at it at the NDA say, oh, that's too generous? Like, cut everything back? Like, is that a risk? Um, 
I, I suppose that is possible. I've never seen it myself, um, but I, um, I, I would say it, it's probably, given that the person who is reviewing is supposed to take a fresh look at everything, it is possible. The only thing that might have changed would be that you've given them additional information to support your own case. Um, so I would be surprised if that happens very often. I'm sure that people care know those things because I know that, um, you know, it can be, you know, your NDS plan is really important to you and it can be incredibly stressful to think, mm. oh, I might apply for SBA and then I'll lose my, like, core supports or, you know, that kind of thing and that people do, do worry a lot about that, so it's important that, that we do let people know that, that it, it's not a huge concern. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a, um, it, it can be such a sort of a, uh, an intimidating uh, process to feel like you're going up against a, a government agency. Uh, you know, I, I, I absolutely hear that very often from people saying, I really want to make sure I know what the, what the risks are or how, how I need to make sure this doesn't go badly um, for me. Um, I would recommend that you speak to an advocate. Like if, I know that advocates are overworked and they're hard to hard to find, but um, is that what you'd recommend? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I think uh, whenever possible, people should absolutely try and get advice from an advocate um, and, and perhaps a lawyer, depending on the complexity. I mean, Felice, in her case, she said she started talking to an advocate and uh, when it got to a particular stage of legal complexity, they decided together that she needed to talk to a lawyer as well. Um, but I think the earlier you can, you can get that, that advice and that help, um, someone to paint you a bit of a, a picture of what might come next, um, that's, that, that's going to leave you in a much better position to make those decisions. But then I also, I, I, yeah, I would want to stress that the decision is yours to make, um, that, that I would hope a good advocate or a good lawyer or anyone advising you at that point is, is being empowering, is saying, well, I, I want to put you in a position to, um, to, to have choice and control over this part of your life about whether you're going to, to, to challenge this decision or, or whether you're going to say, well, maybe that's not something I want to do for now. Okay, so you've got some advocacy advice and you're, you're thinking that you want to fight this. What do you need to prepare? Um, I'm assuming your advocate will hopefully help you do this, but for people like me who love doing things independently, what, what would I need to prepare? Well, well, something I'd better say actually at this point um, is that before uh, before you get to the point of thinking about that, you need to be mindful that there's a there's a, a, a tighter time frame for the AAT review um, that you have to make lodge the appeal to the AAT within 28 days, um, and that's not necessarily a lot of time. So, um, 28 days is the time from the time you get the internal review decision that you want to challenge. You've got 28 days to apply to the AAT. Um, but the thing about that initial application, <laughs> get your skates on. But that initial application does not actually have to have very much in it. Um, it can be quite uh, brief. You basically need to provide just some contact details about yourself. Um, usually, a copy of the decision that's been made is is also something they'll ask you to give them so that they know what's the decision that you're trying to review. Um, and you need to give them just a brief understanding of. Uh, you need to give some reasons for review for why you want to review it. But those can be very very short. They can be as short as saying, I don't agree with this decision um, and I think it, um, instead I should have been funded for X, Y and Z. Um, and that's, that's really all you need to write. It can be one sentence. And so... Can you do that on the website, the AAT website? Yeah, you can do it on the website or there's actually a paper form as well that you can download and, okay. and print out and send in. Um, but in those situations, I, I, I would say if you're finding it hard to manage getting, getting advice and making up your mind about everything within those 28 days, something you can do is file your application with the AAT um, and sort of give relatively brief sorts of, sorts of reasons. You don't have to give a full body of evidence or anything. And then that will buy you some time to go talk to an advocate. And if you talk to an advocate and decide you don't want to go forward, you can always go back to the AAT and say, I know I've applied, but I'd like to withdraw my application now. And that's mm. totally fine to do. How long does that add to the uh, un Unfortunately, George, the, the news can be a bit mixed on that front. Um, yeah. I, I went and looked up some stats about this, actually, because I wanted to make sure I had the up-to-date information. And um, at the last uh, data that they put out, uh, which was about two months ago now, 
uh, it was uh, 31 weeks was the median time it took. So that's um, that that's the median. That's obviously sort of a, a kind of an average. Um, but um, and some will take longer and some will take shorter. But a bit over six months is not a bad ballpark to to be able to take away to say, well, if I apply to the AT, I'm not necessarily expecting it to be over by next week. It's something that I am investing in a, a bit of a uh, a longer process of. Um, of appealing, of, of, of reviewing, and, and of sort of arguing for my my case. That's over half a year. Um, uh, are there ways that you can get the decision expedited or made happen faster? Well, some cases are a little bit easier to ask for a quicker decision on. Um, so some cases where perhaps a person has got uh, certain kinds of evidence already, um, if they've already got every report they're possibly going to need and they're very happy with those, um, then that can sometimes mean that you can push things forward more quickly. And there are sometimes processes where you can ask the tribunal to, um, to move a bit quicker or um, talk to the agency and the agency might be willing to settle the case um, a bit more quickly. It really does vary case to case. And... Um... In that time, you need to gather evidence and do some work, do some homework, I guess. <laughs> um, what if you need info from the MBA? Like, can they help you or do they not want to talk to you now that you're um, taking it to court? Um, yeah, I mean, um, they're not necessarily going to try and um, quote-unquote help you to win um, because obviously you're up against each other in that space. Um, but um, what what is important to know is that when you apply to the AAT, um, the NDIA has to give a copy of every document that they think is relevant. So they give a copy of every document that's relevant to the, um, the tribunal and to you. And so that's normally a, a big old binder or a big old electronic uh, PDF document, um, basically giving the full picture of what's happened. Um, and, and that's often quite helpful, particularly if you maybe don't have, haven't been able to keep records of everything that's happened so far. Um, and it, you can also then look through that and make sure, check and, and see that everything's there that you think should be there, um, or work out, oh, well, looking through this, um, this, this big chunk of documents I've got, um, I've realised that it doesn't include this report or, or that piece of information, or maybe it helps me to see that what's missing is, is something that, that I now need to go and get and provide. And you've got the folder, you've got all the info, um, and then what does the IRT send you an email or write to them and say, oh, it's your turn now. Um, we've got a hearing set up. What, what, what happens next? So usually the next step is what's called a case conference, which is where the AAT gets everyone together over the phone um, and says, let's have a talk about where we're going to go next. Um, and, and normally that conversation um, will be relatively informal between, again, you or your representative, the agency and their representative and the tribunal. And you have a conversation about, well, I would like uh, some time to get this evidence. You know, I'm, um, it, it's helpful to go to that case conference, um, which will happen, you know, a, a month or two in usually, um, to, and say, I want to get three reports. Um, I think that they'll take me another two months to get. Um, so can you give me two months to get reports? I'll file those. Um, let me ask the agency what they're going to get. The agency might say what they intend to provide or if they want, um, they want to get their own information. Um, and then the tribunal might make some orders to say, some directions to say, here's what the time frame is and here's what the next steps are. Um, and then once that's done, they'll probably call you back in for another case conference. And that's typically how the, the tribunal will run things. They'll have a case conference, assign some homework perhaps, um, set some timelines, um, and then people go away and do it until the case is ready to go to a hearing. And then the tribunal will say, right, we're ready to have a hearing. Let's set down a hearing date and some, some sort of opportunities for both sides to, to exchange any legal arguments they want to swap back and forth. What's it like to be in that room with the NDA? Um, I've heard stories where it can be quite intimidating. Like, is there support to do with that? And... Yeah, so something, uh, something that's maybe important to note is that they're normally phone calls rather than getting in the room. And the phone call uh, format, I think, is is quite appropriate because it means that it doesn't maybe feel so intimidating. They're supposed to be quite constructive in tone. Um, and I often say um, as well to my clients when I'm representing someone, I say, I'll go to the, the, the case conference so you don't have to. Um, and I'll talk to the agency's side. Um, if somebody doesn't have a lawyer though and doesn't have an advocate, um, then that might not be an option and participants might have to go to those, um, those phone calls uh, themselves. 
look, I mean, I... I think a common complaint I have heard is that sometimes do, people do feel very intimidated in that setting by the way that the agency's lawyers can act. Um, they maybe don't uh, don't sort of speak in uh, accessible kinds of language. They um, might be asking for things that aren't well explained um, or are perhaps said in ways that are a little bit insensitive. Um, I, I do think that's a real concern that people have raised. Um, I think I, I would say I've seen it get a little bit better over the past year or so. There have been some efforts by the agency and their lawyers to be a little bit more gentle about that approach and a little bit more accessible, a bit less less uh, lawyery about it and a little bit more human. Um, but it's also, yeah, I, I, I would say that people still do come away with and, and, and have stories of, of pretty poor experiences in those those conferences. Yeah, I just want to know that, you know, you don't have to go to all of them. Your advocate can go on your behalf, is that right? And the lawyer can go. Yeah, your advocate or your lawyer can go. Um, I, I would say it's it's often it, it can be a little bit tricky though if people want to have a, a support coordinator go. I often think that can be quite tricky because it puts the support coordinator in an awkward position where they're kind of arguing for you to get more funding or something, and that funding might ultimately be used to pay a support coordinator. Um, so, it's often... it take family and friends. Yeah, family and friends are sometimes a, a better choice if if you can yeah. to say, can they be my support person to to go with me and and help support me? Yeah, I just I want people to know that they, yeah, they're not on their own. They can get support to go to go through the process. That's that's very good. Resolve it for this. Didn't even get to resuming. She had about five um, resuming conferences. Uh, is it common that that things just get solved just before the the bad. Yeah, um, that's very common. Um, so uh, I looked up these statistics too, actually, and oh, the most yeah. recent the most recent stats we've got sixty um, percent of uh, AAT appeals for NDIS cases get settled, where the agency and the person agree that yep, okay. Uh, let's let's settle this, and that normally means that the agency has agreed to compromise or to 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 concede and say, yeah, you were right all along. Um, it usually means that's something like that is what's happened. So sixty percent is um, is where that happens. Another thirty one percent of cases, the person withdrew. Um, so the participant um, has said, you know what, I I don't want to keep going with this either because I don't think it's important anymore, or maybe I'm finding it too stressful. So that's ninety one percent of cases get settled or withdrawn. Only two percent of cases actually go to a hearing um, at the end of the day, and that's a hearing and a final decision by the tribunal. So that's it's actually very uncommon for the tribunal to be the one that makes the final decision. It's funny. I spoke to the former CEO of the NBA, and I said, "Oh, you're spending all this money on uh, on this court case. Wouldn't you rather put it into the into the the agency and into people's plans?" I said, "I don't know." That's a different bucket of money. Um, so they can just um, get more money from more lawyers somehow. I don't know how. I don't know how that really um, incentivizes them to improve their processes. Yeah, unfortunately, there always seems to be enough money for more lawyers. Um, but um, yeah, it would, I think everyone should be able to agree that at the end of the day, the, the less. The less cases that need someone like me or, or um, people on both sides like me to get involved, the better. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the more common mistakes that you see the agency make when you're working with, with in this space? Yeah, so um, one that's very, I think, um, looms large for us doing strategic work is that sometimes you see policies that the agency has that are, are really unhelpful, um, either because they don't uh, direct people making agency decisions to, to consider the right things, um, they, they don't sort of uh, draw your attention to people's choice and control, you know, where they say it's not value for money. I think they, um, they, they're not necessarily helping uh, agency staff to consider the right kinds of value, you know, the, the things that are really personal to somebody. Like in Felice's case, I think a, a well-written policy um, or a well-written set of guidelines could have made sure that a planner was considering those important things for Felice without sort of just writing them off and saying, oh, no, it's too expensive. Um, so I think the policy landscape is is something that, that needs a bit of, of tinkering. I that. I often look at the organisational um, procedures of the NBA and I'm like, hang on, 
where did that come from? I was just last night, I was, because mm. as I do on a Sunday night, I like to read NBA policy, <laughs> as we all do, right? Yeah? Um, and I came across this uh, piece of uh, policy that said that if you have high support needs and you need shadow shifts, and we need another support worker to train and do support worker, we will fund up to six hours a year for people with high support. I'm like, mm. how do you get six hours when you've got people on ventilators who have pink foods? These policies, I often wonder how they drive them up. They don't necessarily make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, and some of them I think don't make don't make good sense. You know, they they just seem obviously sort of out there and and perhaps misguided. And and some of them are actually unlawful. Um, in that sometimes the tribunal takes a look at these guidelines and it says, oh, that's actually not 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 legal or, or not enforceable. Um, and there's Can a number of cases. Um, there, there are a number of different areas that they've done this in. So they've, the tribunal said it um, off the top of my head. It said it about transport policies. It said it about assistance animals policies and, and the kinds of uh, cases where someone can get an assistance animal. It said it about certain things to do with SDA. There's sort of a line here or there, a, a bullet point or two, um, that just is really not something that, that the, the tribunal is going to let stand up. So what happens if the go through the whole process of the IOP and end up with a decision that you're not happy with. Yeah, so um, in that case, uh, basically your, your only option to appeal that decision would be to go to court. And going to court, um, <laughs> we, we talked about how the AAT is uh, de novo earlier. Uh, the court is not de novo. What, the only thing the court can do is look and see if the AAT has made a legal mistake, if they've made a sort of a, a technical legal error. So I, I guess because of that, I, I normally wouldn't just be saying to people, if you don't agree with the AAT, you should roll the dice on going to court. I would say before you do that, you should really straight away go and get legal advice and, and hear what a lawyer has to say about whether they think there's the right sort of um, pieces there for it to be worth running as an appeal. Uh, otherwise, there are much bigger risks in going to court. It can be quite expensive. There can be, and, and it, you really need that advice to help you navigate whether or not you've got a chance, whether or not you've got the a, a case that can get up. Um, but people have gone to court, and people have won um, at court, haven't they? That's true. There, that's there's the been, federal court, right? Yeah, it's the federal court of Australia, and, and so that is true. I think. Um, in most of those cases that um, they've been successful, I think in, each, in, in almost all of them, um, it's been one where people have had to have lawyers involved. And I would assume in those cases they had lawyers ahead of time able to advise them that it was worth doing. So really I would be saying that the, the first step and a very important step is to get legal advice before you go applying mm. to the court. Definitely. Lawyer up before you go to the, the federal court because um, you want to make sure that you're making the right, the right decision. Um, and I, I, I just want to really thank all the people who have gone to the federal court because um, those decisions have been very important. I know that with the, uh, the IOT decisions, but, you know, the end of the we don't really need to follow them. <laughs> but if someone's gone to the federal court, then there is a requirement, isn't there, that the, that the agency reviews the policy to be consistent with that. Yeah, exactly. The courts are an important tool for doing things like clarifying the law, etc. Um, but they are a different kettle of fish to the tribunal. <laughs> Any last words of advice, Mitch, for our listeners who are thinking, oh, I'm not quite sure... What to do? I'm about to go and take the funds and get my decision reviewed. Any last words of advice or encouragement, even? Yeah, I think um, I think the biggest thing I'd say is something I I said a little bit earlier on in our conversation is um, from the start, it's worth sitting down and working out what what's important to me. uh, What are my my priorities? What kinds of supports perhaps do I do I really need and I I'm going to fight for. Um, and perhaps also 
how do I feel about things like investing time and effort? What am I willing to do? And I think that's really helpful as an exercise because it means you'll be able to um, to ask the right questions, to make the right sorts of decisions um, in running a case, um, and, and to make sure that you are uh, exercising as much choice and control over your, your appeal process as you can. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, it is a complicated thing. Uh, it's a complicated sort of scheme um, from a legal perspective. Um, it can often feel intimidating. Um, it's absolutely uh, the right thing to do to go asking for, for support from, um, from advocates, from lawyers, from uh, friends and family or people around you that can help support you through it. Absolutely. And I know that you've been working with the Housing Hub to develop some resources to help people through all this. So, We'll provide some links to those um, in the description below. Um, what kind of resources can people expect to find there? Yeah, we're really excited about these. Um, it's a series of uh, kind of how-to guides um, that we're putting together. Um, and those are designed to be uh, sort of signposts for people going through the process to say, here are the things that you might need to consider at each step of the process, you know, how to lodge my AAT application, how to go get evidence, how to decide uh, what things I need to get for my case, how to go to a case conference, all of those different steps that we've talked about today. We hope that there's going to be a how-to sheet that's useful for somebody um, and, and there'll also be some templates that we'll try and produce to go with those for things like here's, what, here's how you might write uh, certain kinds of letters asking for things like reasons um, or here's, here's how to, to do certain steps. So we're really, we're really thrilled and we, I hope that those will be something that's useful for people um, either um, if they are not able to get as much support as they would like or even if they do, I, I hope it's a helpful guideline so that people can, can read those and know, oh, here's what my lawyer is doing or considering on my behalf, or here are some of the things that might help me decide the right questions to ask my advocate. That's it's really great that you're helping people in, in that way. Thanks for all the amazing work that you and the team at Connect do. Um, I think that's, we're really lucky to have an organisation like um, PIAC, um, uh to just you know, bring that really essential uh, a legal perspective on human rights um, issues that, that, we're, that we're facing when we, when we uh, are relying on the government to make decisions about our lives. Oh, uh, not a problem, George. Thanks very much for having me on. Have a great afternoon. You too. That's what we have time for on today's episode of Visual and Necessary. Thank you to our podcast partners, the Housing Hub, and the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. Revise your feedback, so please hit the like button and share your thoughts with us in the comments below. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.